Okay, assalamu alaikum everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to day three of Surah Al-Imran. We were having some crazy technology problems earlier, so I think it's going to be a really good halakha, inshallah. <laughs> this only happens when we were starting to prepare for a really, really good halakha. Um, I just, again, I wanted to keep my introduction short so we can just get into it, but I just thought I would share um, some really sweet emails. Um, the first one is, um, Salam, dearest Dr. Abul Fadl, Miss Grace, and any other lovely Usuli members reading or hearing this. Um, I first and foremost wanted to express my deepest heartfelt gratitude for all of the incredible work you are doing. Um, I'm a Pakistani-American Muslim living in the U.S. I was privileged to be introduced to Usuli and Dr. Khaled's work a little over a year ago now, and it has been the most enriching and enlightening source of material for my journey with Islam. I pray for all of you and your continued health, safety, happiness, and success and, and again cannot express how grateful I am for your work may Allah reward you immensely and then she goes on to ask a question um, another one um, introduction I won't be able to articulate the extent the Sheikh has been able to influence my understanding of ethics and commitment to justice and beauty it's completely reconstructed and clarified what my fitra has been craving for a long time. My discovery of the sheikh is very recent, probably a couple of months, but what I saw was something that I've never seen in the Muslim discourse before. It's highly refreshing. I wanted to express this before I ask my question. That was really sweet. And then third, I thought I would share this question that I got that I answered as well. The question was, um, hello, I have a question regarding the Asuli Institute. Would you say that the Asuli Institute takes a back-to-basics approach to Islam, or would you disagree with this view entirely? And the way that I answered it is I would say we take a return to the ethical and moral foundations approach by first understanding what the Quran's message and moral trajectory are for humanity. Dr. Abul Fadl's commentaries and learned engagement with the Quran are like no other in our times. As you may know, we are deep diving into every chapter of the Quran in Project Illumin with the premise that every chapter has a unique moral message as 114 parts of a whole message. Taken together, it is a powerful ethical message for humanity for all times, if understood from a moral and ethical interpretive lens. We then apply those ethical lessons to the epistemology of our age to hopefully achieve or at least aspire to fulfill our full potential for creating goodness. Hope this helps. Um, and I, I wanted to share that because, you know, one of the biggest challenges, as I've talked about here, is trying to explain to Muslims, you know, why it's exciting that we are delving deep into the Quran and trying to understand what it actually says for our time. Um, I, I recently watched the 2014 documentary called Unmasked, and if you haven't watched it before, I would highly recommend that you watch it, and partly because, um, you know, it does a very good job of capturing, I think, what no one would find surprising here, which is the climate at um, the mosques in America and why so many people have unmosked or decided not to go to the mosque anymore. And it's disturbing, it's painful, um, it's extremely alarming, and um, you know, and, and they have like sort of some hopeful characters in it that are um, a, a younger group um, of Muslims trying to take some positions on um, a, a board um, at a mosque, um, actually here in Ohio, um, where they had an opportunity to try and take you know, over the leadership to insert some, you know, some new ideas and things like that. What was really striking to me in, in all of that is sort of the absence of reference to the Quran. I mean, not much less God, but the Quran in a sense that it is a living, 
vibrant, energetic message that we should engage and that we should reference for how to build something promising for the future, which is very much the approach that we take here and I think that we get excited about hearing. You know, we hear things here that are inspiring and energizing and feel very modern. You know, God forbid modern is kind of one of those terms that um, people cringe at when you use it to apply to the Quran because, uh, you know, for a lot of different reasons. but. Clearly, people uh, I've noticed um, don't really talk about the Quran except as a sort of antiquated reference point that has nothing really to do with the challenges that we face here today. And it's striking because as Muslims, that should be our center point for thinking about how we build something for the future and something you know that's hopeful. But it isn't like that in most Muslim spaces that I've encountered. And from hearing you know other people I've spoken with, they have had the same experience. So um, in, in one sense, it's, you know, it's alarming and painful, but in another sense, it's hopeful when you know what's happening here in this space. And our challenge is to try and communicate to other people outside of this space um, and outside of Project Illumin that we are actually doing something you know, new and interesting and important and relevant for you know, changing our very dark circumstances. Um, so I, I really encourage you, if you have not watched Unmasked, definitely to do that because it's, it's a powerful, um, you know, hour of putting everything together and getting kind of a sense of where it is. Um, this was 2014, and I would say that there has not been much change or improvement since then. Um, and from, from my perspective, and it doesn't take into account the rise in Islamophobia and all of the things that have happened since 2014. So um, we're not doing better by those standards. And I don't know that the documentary, I know a lot of people reference it and, and probably have seen it, but I don't know how much of a change has actually taken place. But um, so, but there's always with this project Illumin, there's always hope for the future, and I think so much of it really depends on people's belief that the Quran has something very vibrant to offer for our time. Um, so with that, I'm so excited to um, jump in again to another session of Surah Imran. Thank you for joining us, inshallah. Um, it'll be incredible. على النبي المصطفى خاتم الأنبياء والرسل أجمعين المرسل رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وأصحابه وانتبعوا إحسان إلى يوم الدين يا رب العالمين رم شرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وأحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب يا الله اللهم لا تكلفنا إلا وسعنا ولا تحمل علينا إصرا كما حملت على الذين من قبلنا اللهم لا تحاسبنا إن نسينا وأخطأنا ولا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به يا علي عظيم يا رب بسم الله أوكي سو In our journey with Surat Al-Umran, it's really, it's sort of a, it, it's a, a remarkable thing that if you, if your companion is the Quran in life and you live with the Quran as your companion, and it's astounding. You, you, we have in our midst 
in our midst, God speaking, using our language to speak. Not speaking through just nature, creation, history, intellectual intuition. All of these are indirect ways of communication, but the Quran is in our midst. And um, it's remarkable because when it really dawns on you, it feels that everything else in life is insignificant in comparison. When it really dawns on you, listening to what God is saying to you, engaging it, living it, breathing it, comprehending and internalizing everything else seems to pale in comparison that's if you really internalize how temporary this life is and that there's a coming life that you have not experienced But if you believe your God, you have to accept as a truth. Subhanallah, as we will see, Al-Amran itself circle back, circles back to the role of revelation. And what does it mean to be a believing human being anchored in revelation in the midst of all the ups and downs of life and the tribulations of life. So recall Some of the basics of Surah Al-Umran, sort of the basic anatomy. We start out with Allah constructing an image for us. Fi'atan, two groups. And posing that, that, that issue of these two groups, one claiming to fight in the name of God, and one is the opposite. And then Al-Amran goes, takes you, and unpacks, as we've seen, step by step, that group that claims to be fighting in Allah's cause, what it's, if you will, it's, it's ethical dynamics, it's ethical structure. It's like the ethical anatomy of the group that claims to be on Allah's side. And then it takes you, as the Quran often does, because Allah is eternal, has been present in history, always. So, the events of history, 
and especially the events surrounding the prophets, which Allah has sent as the, the all the prophets are as if a tool, a medium for education. The purpose of the prophets is that whatever occurs with them, it is to relate a lesson. And so all the examples, or the vast majority of examples, I should say, that come in the Quran come from the, the narrative generated by the educational tool, i.e. prophecy. The sending of the prophets and what happens with the prophets. And as we saw, then Al-Amran comes and gives us a rather serene um, powerful picture of events in history that seem by the, by the material conclusions of these events, the birth of John Yahya, John the Baptist, and the birth of Jesus, and the dynamics between Al-Amran and Mary, Maryam. And it leaves us with that, with this, this sort of engagement that these individuals born short-lived, existing in largely negative circumstances, existing in circumstances that actually overwhelm them, circumstances that are so um, unaccommodating that both John and Jesus end up being persecuted and ultimately exterminated. And yet, the Quran comes and says, these events were the seeds for the victory of the party of God. But then it takes us after having said that, it takes us, and as I've said before several times, because unfortunately Muslims keep forgetting this, and you don't find it in the traditional tafsir, but everything that the Quran says to us about people of the book, the intention is not to tag or to uh, put a label on the people of the book. The intention is to teach us something. So everything that the Quran says about the people of the book applies to us. It communicates something to us. And as we've seen,
and as we've seen, the, the engagement then continues to elucidate and clarify the numerous pitfalls that the party that is supposed to be the party of God could easily fall into. And we reach the point where this, this, if you want, this crescendo, this, this critical, overwhelming point that it cannot be that the party of God would become, become about human worship or worshiping of human beings. The sanctification, the elevation, the personality cults, that's not what it's about. What the party of God has to be about is to become godly human beings. And as we've talked about, godliness, and here you do find quite a bit in the tafsir, and especially in, in Sufi types, uh, Sufi orientation tafsir, but not exclusively, because it's actually quite, quite a few people, whether Sufi or not, have talked about this, that being godly is, is a lifetime project. It is a, an, a, a moral orientation towards the entire ummah. It is not setting the moral order according to the calls of the human ego, what the human ego craves, but actually setting the moral order according to the elevated principles of the divine. Put differently, if your philosophy in life, individually or socially, as a society or as individuals, if your philosophy is a materialistic philosophy, sort of historical materialism, if you will, it's a philosophy of pure capitalism, of supply and demand and utility. That's not Rabbani, that's not godly. The godly philosophy is a philosophy of principles, is a philosophy of the muhkamat, of, of Umm al-Kitab. And this is core, because as we will see, it is that core that ultimately withstands the test when there are tribulations and hardship, if that core is corrupted, if there is no godliness in this core, when the tests come, when the hardship comes, there is a collapse. But if that core is sound, there is sufficient amount of godliness in there at least to withstand, then, then it's like a, then the, you can withstand the pressure. And we will see Surat Al-Amran unpack this for us. 
אוקיי. So, we talked about how the Quran teaches the party of God to be discerning. It is not a party that skips to sweeping generalizations. It is a party that has ethical discernment. It is a party that looks at the other and differentiates between, as the Quran puts it, that moral human being who can be trusted was a qantar and the immoral human being that cannot be trusted even was a dinar and tells us that again remember that it is if you don't have that discernment you don't have that ethical principle that says well you know i I differentiate between the other, whether they're moral or immoral, then in fact you are emptying your Rabbani status or abandoning your Rabbani status and hence your claim of being the party of God is problematic. Okay. Then, so let's, we stopped at 80. وَإِذَا أَخَذَ اللَّهُ مِثَاقَ النَّبِيِّينَ This is 81. وَإِذَا أَخَذَ اللَّهُ مِثَاقَ النَّبِيِّينَ أَمَّا آتَيْتُكُمُ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَالْحِكْمَةِ ثُمَّ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مُصَدِّقٌ لِمَا مَعَكُمْ لِتُؤْمِنَنَّ بِهِ وَلَتَنْصُرَنَّهُ قَالَ أَقَرَرْتُمْ وَأَخَسْتُمْ عَلَى ذَلِكُمْ إِصْرِي قَالُوا أَقْرَرْنَا قَالَ فَاشْهَدُوا وَأَنَا مَعْكُمْ مِنَ الشَّاهِدِينَ فَمَنْ تَوَلَّ بَعْدَ ذَلِكْ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْفَاسِقُونَ أَفَغَيْرَ دِينَ اللَّهِ يَبْغُونَ وَلَهُ أَسْلَمَ مَنْ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضَ from 80 to 83, the thing to note here is that go back to 81. Let's see the transition. So the the Solemn pledge, what that solemn pledge from the prophets is that with the prophets come the anchor of the revelation. And the anchor of revelation is always accompanied by this, Both are larger than life. Both are magical expressions, but revelation and hikmah and wisdom. And we've said we've talked before about what wisdom taps into, because it is a symbiotic relationship. Without 
revelation, your attempt at wisdom is deficient. And without wisdom, your understanding of revelation is deficient. In the same way that you equip yourself, you train yourself, you study to become capable of understanding revelation, you must also train yourself and equip yourself so you are capable of exploring hikmah, wisdom. If you are deficient in either, we have a problem. And the expression um well, I'm just the al isra is ahd or so you say yu'sar. Um, something that is a bond, is a tie, is a, like, um, what, what is a solemn, firm pledge. Um, Yeah, Muhammad Asad translates, uh, he said, acknowledge and accept my bond on this condition. They answered, we acknowledge it. Then God said, then bear witness and I shall be your witness. And henceforth, all who turn away from this pledge, it is they who are truly inequitous. The, the, although we don't, because of the way we teach our theology in the modern age, note that the Quran consistently, and the Ali Amran will come back to the idea of the pledge again later, but consistently reminds you that if you say, I believe, if you are a believer, then what you are accepting is a pledge. It's a pledge with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is a, a firm bond that you are, you, it's like you are committing to living your life according to revelation and wisdom. This is why, you know, someone, someone like Muhammad al-Ghazali would write at length about the incoherence of the idea of an ignorant or a Muslim who, within the standards of the age, is not, un, is not wise. This is precisely where that comes from. That, the, that you as a Muslim, any Muslim, has accepted a pledge between themselves and Allah that they anchor their life in this revelation and in the principles of wisdom. 
Now, the implications of this, of course, are profound because, you know, if you're living life, as Grace was mentioning, and, and revelation is not really a reality in your existence. You don't have a personal relationship, either with revelation or wisdom, because both are necessary. Then we've got a problem. Okay. Eighty-three. These types of, uh, you know, these these questions posed by Allah: "Av ghayr adin Allah yabhun, wa lahu aslam man fi al-samawati wa man fi al-ard, wa lahu aslam man fi al-samawati wa al-ard, tawan wa karha layir yirjaun." The sort of questions that Allah rhetorically poses to us. Um, if you allow them to strike your heart, it, it, it really has a, it's like you feel like you're born again. Um, do they seek, do they, how could they seek another deen? Or how could they forsake their deen? When to God, whatever is in the heavens and earth, have surrendered, whether willingly or unwillingly, and everything in existence returns to God. You know, once again, this, this emphasis that everything in existence has an owner, Everything in existence, by the virtue of the fact that it follows preset laws that God has created, is in submission to the Lord. There is, there, there is nothing outside the sovereignty and the dominance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's a, it, if you internalize it, obviously it affects the way that you see everything in existence and the way that you relate to everything in existence. The existence is not there for you to subjugate because existence is already in a state of submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. very different from the, the secular ethic that has dominated in the modern world where we often, our attitude towards nature is that nature is there for human beings to subjugate, for human beings to sort of conquer and redirect. Um, and of course that type of attitude the attitude that has led to the, the to the creation of development companies that often, I mean, if you know what's going on with the Amazon right now, it, it is truly, it, it has reached a, a crisis level to the extent that there is a movement 
to try to get, it's a very hard case to make because the way international law is right now, but to try to get the International Criminal Court of Justice to take jurisdiction, bringing charges against the current president of Brazil because the destruction of the Amazon that this fellow has allowed, he's sort of a Trump guy, um, is effectively genocidal. Its impact is genocidal upon human beings. Now, of course, it's a hard case to make because inter current international law doesn't recognize uh, envi environmental genocides as within the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. But, you know, what they call ecocides environmental genocides are a very real thing and the, 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 the consequences upon human beings around the globe are as devastating as the worst type of war. Um, a very different attitude than looking at nature with reverence and the presumption is that you can you, you, you it it owned already is all owned by God, and so you are not simply free to destroy and profit. Um, anyway, okay. Notice then eighty four when the affirmation again for that party, party of Allah. This is 84. A Muslim pledges to accept the message of all the prophets as a unified and singular and continuous message. And then the very famous area that a lot of people recite, you, you find quoted in different circumstances, Now, of course, in the modern age, you find people citing this to say that it is all, the only accepted religion is Islam, and, and I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. But what this ayah has to be understood in the context of Ali Umran. And Ali Umran uses Islam in the same way that it talks about the, that as-samawat wal-ard, Aslamat lillah, that is, the heavens and earth have all surrendered to God, is that the basic faith, the essential faith, is a faith of surrender. That you must accept God as supreme. As we will see in Ali Umran, Ali Umran itself tells us that. 
there are from Ahli Kitab, there are people from the, from, who are not officially Muslim, that in fact can surrender to God. And this is God's business, how God deals with a, with a, a, a Christian or a Jew who surrenders to God. That's God's business. It's not ours. So it is a misapplication of the ayah to use it in the exclusionary fashion that a lot of modern Muslims use it. What it's saying is the principle of surrender. That's the foundational principle. There are people who take the shahada but don't surrender to God. There are a lot of technically Muslims that their life is as far from a surrender to God as you can get. And there are people who are not Muslims that, or Christian or Jewish, or who do in fact surrender to God. Now, what is God going to do with this? That's God's business, not ours. But it obviously, between the two, I think that someone who takes the shahada and doesn't surrender to God is in trouble. Because the, the, the meat, the real issue, is in surrender. Okay. So, notice then, that from 86, كَفَ يَهْدِي اللَّهُ قَوْمًا كَفَرُوا بَعْدَ إِيمَانِهِمْ وَشَهِدُوا أَنَّ الرَّسُولَ حَقٌّ وَجَاءَهُمُ الْبَيِّنَاتِ وَاللَّهُ لَا يَهْدِي قَوْمَ الظَّالِمِينَ Up to uh, 90. إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بَعْدَ إِيمَانِهِمْ ثُمَّ ازْدَادُوا كُفْرًا لَنْ تُقْبَلَ تَوْبَتَهُمْ وَأُولَئِكَ هُمْ الضَّالُونَ الْأَمْرَانْ then talks about a real-life issue that Muslims confronted in Medina and confronted around the time of the Battle of Uhud. And the, there are numerous reports that at that time, I'm not going to go into all the different, different reports and sort of the, the detailed disagreements, but the, 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 the crux of the reports is that there was a fellow called um, Al-Haris ibn Suwayyid and Al-Haris ibn Suwayyid had converted and him and uh, um, uh, um, his he, he was close to a group of people he seemed to be their, their sort of yeah, I mean, he, he's the one that 
he, he was a poet, and they, they listened to him and influenced by him. Um, a fellow called uh, Toma ibn al-Abayraq, and um, um, there's another guy called Huh um, ibn Aslat. Um, so anyway, so uh, Al-Harith converts and follows the Prophet, but then apostates around the time of Uhud. It is not clear if he apostates after Uhud or right before Uhud. They're conflicting reports. And him, the Abayrak fellow, and the Eslet fellow, and others, there are a whole group of them, apostate and pick up and go back to Mecca. Now, again, imagine, we, we, we recite these historical events without paying a lot of attention to, to what the reality was. Imagine you are you know, establishing this 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 movement, you are under enormous amount of pressure. You have Christians and Jews that are you are in, engaged in polemics with Jews who and Christians who even pretend to convert to Islam and then leave the face to put doubt in the hearts of of um, Muslims, but on top of that, you have people who apostate and pick up and go back to Mecca. The, the emotional impact, the social dynamics that occur because of this are intense. Put bluntly, if your faith is not strong, if you see people apostating, you could be shaken by it. It could affect you. So, anyway, as the story goes, after Harris goes back to Mecca, he starts having second thoughts. And he eventually decides that he made a mistake. And he wants to come back to Islam and he sends the companions, he sends a number of companions a letter where he is asking if I convert back to Islam, will the Prophet accept my repentance? And the Prophet answered that he would. So Al-Harith himself, who started this, comes back to Islam and migrates from Mecca to Medina again. He escapes from Mecca because they won't let him go. But his friends that apostated don't come back, and they remain in Mecca. And so we have all these reports that say that this portion of Ali Amran is talking about these folks and saying,
those who after having been, having attained the face, after Allah has blessed them with the face, and borne witness to the Prophet, والسلام, they, they, the, the Prophet took the Shahada and they uh, interacted with the Prophet in, in Medina, living with him for months and years. And then after that, the, the Europe, they, they apostate and that God will not forgive them unless, of course, they come back, which is rather the, the obvious for, point. But, except those who repent and do good. However, those who remained and refused to come back, the, the, the people who did not come back from after, or didn't follow Harris after he came back to Islam, they are doomed. Again, you know, this, this, we always go back to the issue of the seerah. Look at, pay attention to how much Ali Amran reveals about the social dynamics existing at the time of the Prophet in Medina. This is the early Medina period. And all the numerous challenges that are confronting Muslims, including the deeply hurtful emotional challenge of apostasy and betrayal. Now, so the question well, if we don't want to be among those whose faith is so weak that it is affected by rumors or by stories of who apostated and who didn't, if we don't want to be people who are swayed back and forth by what our neighbors do or our friends do, What can we do to avoid being such people? And Anu Amran responds to this by saying, لَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرَّ حَتَّى تُنْفِقُوا مِمَّا تُحِبُّونَ وَمَا تُنْفِقُوا مِنْ شَيْءٍ فَإِنَّ اللَّهَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ بِهِ عَلِينَ Well, the obvious answer is that you need birr. Birr is the elevated state of faith. Whereas we've talked about before, that you are anchored in, in, in a Rabbani state of ethical consciousness, moral consciousness. But remarkably, the prescription that Al-Amran gives 
yeah, Allah knows that what you what you hope for is better to be but understand that bir requires a divorce from your materialism. If you think you are going to attain bir without spending of without spending from what you love, then think again. I'm, I'm going to say more about this, but I, I forgot one thing about um, verse 90 that I want to go back to. Um, notice, إِنَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا بَعْدَ إِيمَانِهِمْ ثُمَّ ازْدَادُوا كُفْرًا لَنْ تُقْبَلَ تَعْبَتَهُمْ وَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الضَّالُّونَ Notice in in 90 because this actually a lot of written is a lot is written about it in the tafsir verily uh, those who are bent on denying the truth after having attained faith then they grow in the refusal to acknowledge the truth so they 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 are they Attain faith, then they become kuffar, then they become more kuffar, then it says that their repentance shall not be accepted. This Mufassirun, the interpreters, stopped at this. Why? Because think about it. So, how can you, okay, we all understand you, you, you are Muslim. Then you apostated. Okay, we understand. But then, how is it that you became even more of a kafir? You, you even, re, your kufr increased. But then what repentance? So is it saying that those who apostated and then became horrible apostates, real, really strong apostates, that if they repent and come back to Islam, those people, their tawbah, their repentance will not be accepted. Because if you're if you're not understanding the mutashabih, example of a mutashabih, right? In our paradigm of the muhkam and mutashabih, if you're not understanding the mutashabih, you would read this and say. So it's saying that some of the apostates, even if they come back to Islam, it's too late. Their repentance is not going to be accepted. Well, that reading would be wrong. That understanding would be wrong. Why? Because we have a historical context that these, this area is addressing. Some of the people that apostated when they saw Al-Harith had gone back to Islam and gone back to, to Medina they stubbornly said 
no, he's wrong. We will remain kuffar. And three of them, among them is Al-Abayrak and Al-Aslat, went the extra mile in committing ugly deeds to indulge in their kufr. So they did things that even by the standards of Arabs at the time, uh, polytheists at the time, uh, would be dishonorable. And later on, they, like Al-Abayrak, announced that they are sorry for what they've did. They, they've killed, uh, among, among the things that was done, uh, they've pillaged some caravans, killed some people who were not Muslim, they were, they were uh, and uh, people like Al-Abayrak said that I, I repent I am sorry for the evil deeds I've done, but I remain a Kafir. So the repentance it's talking about is that they, they, they were sorry for unethical behavior, but they never came back to Islam. And it's, then you understand what it's saying. So it's saying that, well, for those people who apostated and then indulged in evil deeds and then they said they're I'm sorry for the evil deeds well Allah is not gonna their sorry is meaningless their apology is meaningless for, for because it, they've never repented for their kufr in their first place because uh, you might find I've I've found unfortunately again you know among those uh, self-educated Muslims or self-declared experts give this ayah very strange interpretations. Okay, so let's go back to now to 92. That you will not attain bir, you will not have that elevated status, that strong status where you are not influenced by eventualities and conditions unless your attitude towards material things changes. Now, when this ayah was revealed, we have numerous reports about the social dynamics when this ayah was revealed. The Prophet ﷺ made it very clear that if you are aspiring towards birr, and remember from Surah Al-Baqarah that Bir is critical to your covenant. That it's a risky thing to say I'm a Muslim but I'm not a Bar. That's actually a, sort of a, it could be quite a contradiction in terms. But anyway, and. Uh, the Prophet 
has a hadith where he's when he's asked how would you describe al-birr and the prophet answers al-birr husnul khuluq and here it is not just having a good personality husnul khuluq means ethical character al-birr to use our language to be anchored in ethics so that you are what a Muslim should be a moral human being and we have numerous reports about how the companions having heard this start um, giving up what is most dear to them. So, Abu Talha, عنه, for instance, this is a famous story that he had in, in a well. And, and you know that wells are extremely valuable in the desert. And if you have a well, then you own a little oasis. And if you own an oasis, it, it, you can sell it for an absurd amount of money because they're extremely valuable. And so Abu Talha, after the revelation of this verse, donated or wanted to donate his oasis. And the Prophet ﷺ, knowing the circumstances and conditions of Abu Talha and his family, Said Allah accepts it from you, but I, in my, in my, I would suggest that instead of donating it to Muslims at large, uh, give it, donate it to your family. So, in other words, make it your family needs the oasis. And of course, Abu Talha accepted. Um, Abu Zar al Ghafari. Uh, after the revelation of this verse, he calls a, a kid that was in his service and tells him, go pick the best camel that I have and donate it. And the, the man knowing that Abu Dhar is not well off and doesn't own, he has uh, two camels. One camel who was very valuable, another camel who's old and sickly. So he told Abu Dhar, donate the, 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 the camel who's less valuable because you don't have anything. If you give up your most valuable camel, then you have no real possessions worth anything. And Abu Dhar responds by saying, خُنْتَنِي You've betrayed me. Uh, what? Yes, I have needs in this earth, but what I need the most is what what I want the most is what I will need once I am in my grave, in my qabr. And he insisted on giving up his expensive camel. Um, Zayd ibn al-Harisa, after the revelation of this verse, owned a horse and if you if you know anything about Arab culture back then and to some extent now 
of course now it's uh, it's only rich people who do have but horses and especially steeds are you know people Arabs used to write poetry long poems about the their steeds and if the and so Zayd ibn Haritha owned a, a an extremely valuable steed the subject of poems and the, his pride and joy and after the revelation of this verse he gave up his steed went to the prophet and said this is what is most beloved to me uh, Ibn Umar is said to had have in his service a um, a girl that a, a slave girl from who came from Byzantia because she was blue-eyed and blonde and Ibn Omar was in love with her and wanted to marry her but after the revelation of this verse he frees her and he, he has a very famous there's a, a a famous poem about Ibn Omar giving up or, or freeing uh, the Roman girl, who's not a Muslim, by the way, um, understa understanding that the, if you don't give up what you love, you are not going to draw closer to Allah. You are not going to have the path of being among those who love Allah and are loved by Allah as Ali Omran tells us. Now, of course, it is remarkable. It is, I mean, it's just like that khutbah that I gave on, on, on Friday. It is remarkable because it, it in Islam, no, no, no religion emphasized the fact that Or, you know, unpacked and dissected the issue of the relationship of human beings to material things and how it affects their ethical status, their moral consciousness, it affects their, their closeness to Allah, it affects their social structure, it affects their chances of success, their ability to be liberated or unliberated, their ability to have self-determination or not have self-determination, and it, you know, again and again and again underscored, it is not talk, it is not slogans, it is not, you know, poems that are going to decide whether you get the power to determine your fate or not on this earth, or whether you are dominant or subservient on this earth. It is what you spend. And to then look at Muslims today and find that they are grossly outspent, grossly outspent by every group, Baha'is, Jews, Christians, Hindus, Buddhists, it, it's astounding.
you know, even a religion that Buddhism does hardly talks about the issue of spending as a way of being close to, to spiritually close. It, you know, it talks about not loving material things and so on, but, but, uh, 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 you know, targeted spending is not a part of Buddhist literature. And it is only a very recent part, a recent phenomenon of Hindu literature. So what, what, you know, it, it really just makes you and especially that after colonialism, Allah gave Muslims, and I've said this before many times, the Allah just sent a windfall upon Muslims. Just like, you know, literally a windfall. Gave them the financial means to recreate their civilization post-colonialism a civilization greater than any prior civilization that Muslims have created. If they would have spent that wealth intelligently that God gave them as a windfall, they could have built a ummah. They, they you know, completely rose from the ashes of colonialism. And it is the mishandling of Allah's na'mah that wasted that gift. The world, I mean, listen, colonialism created a modern world that relies on energy to move. Right? It relies on energy for the wheels to stay in motion, for the markets to function. And Allah put the greatest deposit of this energy in Muslim countries and said, here, now if you manage this energy correctly, If you use, look at the way Israel is a country that, in terms of natural resources, extremely limited, but extremely well managed. You read about the Israeli economy, extremely well planned a vigilant system of oversight and accountability, and independent prosecutorial offices and independent judicial offices to constantly go after corruption. So this one country with properly managed resources became far more powerful, far more dominant, far more influential than how many countries around it that used their wealth to buy weapons to kill each other and to have parties and hotel rooms and import the most expensive entertainers and 
it, it is astounding. It is, it is just, it blows your mind. Can you, you can, just think of this. One night of partying, one night of the parties that the Saudis have in Bahrain, where they trash a hotel room, and it takes 200,000 pounds, pounds, not dollars, to fix the damage to the hotel room. The party itself costs more than 200,000 because they bring in entertainers, they bring in prostitutes, they bring in drugs, they bring in the most expensive alcohol, they fly in. One night, the, the expense of one night of partying would set the Quran project for life. Would allow us to publish the Quran project in the best shape imaginable. It is mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And if you are a Muslim and you think, oh, well, don't tell me about this because, you know, then there's something wrong with your faith. Because it is a core part of how we deal with our reality. Then we, we at a minimum, we must live a life that constantly communicates our, di our disapproval, our vehement testimony that this is haram, 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 that Allah gave you a windfall for the Muslim ummah, not for a tribe, a people, a nation, for the Muslim ummah, and you have committed a historical crime against the Muslim ummah by wasting these resources. And that it is our business, collectively, as Muslims. Who manages our holy sites? What happens to Jerusalem? What happens to every part of the Muslim Ummah? It is our business. What happens to Muslims in China? What happens to Muslims in Burma? What happens to Muslims in Bosnia? What happens to Muslims in Kashmir? What happens to Muslims in the Middle East? What happens to Muslims everywhere? Okay, let's take a five minute break. So, Okay, so you will not attain the status of bir unless you spend from what you cherish not what is extra, not what is a surplus, not from what you do not need or do not want, but from what you actually cherish and what you value. Then, notice in Ninety-three 
it moves to responding to another um, another condensed 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 it 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 moves on to responding to another context within Medina, another uh, of of the dynamics that are taking place in Medina at time, at the time, and that is so. Imagine there are the polemics or the issue of those who had apostated. The issue with the those who are described as the hypocrites, those who have converted to Islam but only nominally so, those who pretend to convert to Islam and then apostate and remain in Medina as a tactic. But in addition to that, there are the polemics that are going on between Muslims and Christians and Jews who are living in Medina. And among these polemics are arguments with the Jewish tribes in Medina, in which the Jewish tribes claim that this cannot be a religion from the God of Ibrahim because it did not uphold all the dietary restrictions in Jewish law. There are in, in um, Orthodox, in our age we call it Orthodox, in, in Orthodox Jewish law, there are numerous dietary restrictions that are go back to the Talmud and the rabbinic tradition. And these dietary restrictions are quite detailed uh, and quite um, serious. If you are, if you're going to observe all of them, then they, you know, there are. Um, there are a lot of rules um, that you would have to follow. So, among these rules is that the, the claim that the dietary restrictions in Jewish law are have always been there long before the prophet Israel or Yaqub. Israel, Israel is Yaqub, Jacob. And so the, the claim is that, the, that these restrictions go back to Ibrahim السلام, and that since the Quran did not affirm these dietary restrictions, then this, this is proof that this cannot be um, uh, uh, this cannot be the God of Ibrahim. And the Quran responds to this in 93, in 93 by saying this is nonsense, effectively. That 
these restrictions were imposed. There are many different reports in both the Jewish tradition and the Islamic tradition. The Islamic tradition, actually, most of the narratives in the Islamic tradition was, were copied from the Jewish tradition about why Jacob uh, adopted these dietary restrictions. Um, yeah, we don't need, need to, go to, to go into these reports because not, none of them are, are reliable anyway. But the, the fact is that saying that these are dietary restrictions adopted by Jacob because of dynamics that have to do with the Israelites and the prophecy of Jacob. Your claim that it predates Jacob is unfounded. Now, this type of argument or the argument about, well, you know, a true prophet would do X, Y, Z, for our modern ears, these are not big issues. For them back then, and that's why, again, if you use that, the idea of the mutashabihat, that's why it, you can describe it as a mutashabihat, because it, it would be confusing for people other than those who were living in the moment and understood that this is rather a big issue. Whether, in fact, these dietary restrictions predate Jacob or don't predate Jacob, whether they're proof of prophecy, not proof of prophecy, and so on and so forth. But what we take from it, the part that is muhkam for us, is notice. So, notice in 94, فَمَنِ افْتَرَى عَلَى اللَّهِ كَذِبْ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكَ فَأُولَٰئِكَ هُمُ الظَّالِمُونَ Importantly, claiming that something is haram, that is not haram, is described in 93 as افْتَرَاءِ كَذِبْ عَلَى اللَّهِ Lying. Is to um, falsely attribute things to lie about God. And so, while the historical issue, it could, you know, we, we, we might not connect with, but what we must connect with is the principle, the muhkam that claiming that something is haram, that God has not made haram, arguing that this is, or claiming that God's will is X, Y, Z, on no basis, is iftira'i it is lying about God. In other words, a grave moral offense. Again, imagine if people who claim to be the party of God were conscientious of this and understood that their relationship to Allah involves the enormous humility of 
never putting themselves in a position where they are يفتروون كذب where they are actually lying about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how do you lie about Allah when you attribute to Allah what is Allah what Allah what you attribute to Allah without basis without evidentiary basis without evidence okay So this is a, an example of you know what we've talked about about the muhkam and mutashabah. What you, how you go to a contextual issue and extract what is a foundational moral issue. Okay. Then you notice a point that I alluded, alluded to earlier that it goes back within these polemics that are taking place between Jews and Muslims and the Qibla has changed and Jews say any true Abrahamic religion would direct itself towards Beit al-Maqdus, towards Jerusalem the holy site of Jerusalem because that is the center for all Abrahamic anything that comes from Ibrahim and the point that the Quran makes and I've mentioned this before is that no if you're talking about original what is an original the Awalabayt the first home the first house of worship on earth created by the Prophet Ibrahim السلام, was the one in Mecca and uh, that actually predates and precedes Bayt al-Maqdus which comes later okay Yeah. Notice again something that um, we can't just pass over. In, in 97, the, the Quran in several occasions underscores that, and we even call it the, the Haram al Makki. Haram. Haram is the same word for Haram, meaning the place that is a sacred space with numerous prohibitions and all the prohibitions have to do with killing, destruction, um, violating the sanctity of the space by engaging in behavior. So it is a you know, if you steal in the haram, it is a far graver sin than if you steal outside the haram. Shedding blood in the haram is a very serious offense. Uh, destroying a tree or any living thing in the haram is a very grievous offense. You are not free to deal with what is a sacred space. But notice in 
ومن دخله كان آمنا The idea that predates Islam is the sanctity of Al-Haram Al-Makki that even if you have a feud with someone you cannot pursue your feud or shed blood in the Haram this is a space claimed by God and violating the space and the Bayt al-Maqdus we forget today by the way uh, because you know Israelis violate the, the sanctity of Bayt al-Maqdus left and right every day and we don't care but it is an equally grievous sin it is a sacred space violence and death and bloodshed in that sacred space is an affront and violation against Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Al-Amn fi al-Haram al-Makki There is in the, in, in the interpretive tradition you find quite a bit written about this. Um, that remarkably in, in Islamic history the, the, you find a lot of the fiqh tells you that shedding blood, inducing fear or anxiety, even pursuing, there's discussions in fiqh as to whether pursuing a criminal if they enter the haram, um, whether that's permissible or not. And then jurists have these long discussions as, as to well, what if they resist, you know, whether you, you just have to simply uh, effectively uh, wait, like you, you basically um, blockade, you, you, you wait until a criminal exits the haram, but you, you avoid the possibility of violence by not um, executing a risky arrest within the haram. We're talking even just arresting someone leave alone shedding blood on the haram. But the parts of the, the, the discourse that I, I find most fascinating is that when Allah talks about man amina, that the haram would become a place where people feel secure from the tyranny of the state. So, they talk, they, they, this is a, um, uh, some of the most interesting discussions is after the Amawi Khilafa, the capital is moved away from Mecca or Medina, obviously, to Baghdad, to Damascus, and then Baghdad, and then, and for the rest of Islamic history, the state avoids the Haram al-Makki being the capital. And then you find these fascinating references that say, well, this is because after the Khilafah became Mulk, 
when the Khilafah existed, it was possible to feel Al-Amn Al-Haram. But after the Khilafah became Mulk, became despotic, and the Khilafah was lost, that Muslims knew that injustices would be committed in the capital, wherever the capital is. And since Muslims knew that Al-Haram had to be Amin, they would establish their capitals away from the Haram. And the Haram remained a place where was a sanctuary, and effectively an asylum, where, you know, you get away from the state you might engage the state whenever you wish to engage the state, but when you get tired of the state and the um, uh, the, the turbulence of politics, and then you know they, they would give a lot of discussions about all the imma and all the fuqaha and all the ulama that would uh, travel to the haram and live in the sanctuary of the haram for years, and that. Um, and then these very interesting narratives about whether true or not, but that's the, that uh, um, about how you know they would Allah would protect them from um, uh, from the spies of the state, and Allah would protect them from all in the haram. This type of these types of narratives. Even the exaggerated narratives, the, 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 the ones that endorse mythologies about miracles of protection and the haram and so on, is lost in our culture. So the idea that the haram, al-Matki, and Jerusalem, by the way, because you find the same discussions about Jerusalem, are sanctuaries where people are entitled to a state of asylum has been erased from the modern Muslim consciousness. You go to the haram and the haram is part a, a heavily regulated, heavily policed part of the modern state in Saudi Arabia. The idea that it is a dissident or an outcast or, you know, a, a majzub, a crazy Sufi would, they, like for centuries in the past, would go and live Fijiwar al-Haram, next to the Haram, and as long as they are next to the Haram, they would be untouchable, has been lost. And this is what, oh, what, in Islamic history, made the haram the most culturally interesting part in the Muslim world. Look at Ibn Arabi's discussions, or a description of his experiences in Mecca. It is, it was clear that Mecca, the Wahhabis saw it as chaos, but it wasn't chaos. It was enormous cultural diversity. Everything was in Mecca. That has been completely lost. 
Sadly, the other part that lost, that you find all the discussions about how grave it is to cut a tree or change the topography of Mecca. So, every time a state would think of doing expansions in the in Haram or, or changing the topography in any way, no one dared until the modern age to tear down the house of the Sahaba or the historical buildings. No one dared do it. To dare, tear down the homes of the Sahaba and the homes of Alil Bayt, no one dared do it until the modern age. And ironically, the people who dared do it were the people who claimed to be the most literal, puritanical followers of the rules. Which is an irony behind all ironies. Anytime there was even a thought, there would be literally the, the authorities, even including the Ottoman period, they would obtain a, a ton of fatawa back and forth discussion whether you can pave this road, whether you can uh, change the, 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 the sanctuary was, was, was understood as a sanctuary and that you couldn't even destroy a tree without going through the motion of saying, you know, I really need to cut this tree down. This, again, has been completely lost of the Muslim modern consciousness. The topography, Mecca is, is look at the pictures of, that were taken of Mecca just a hundred years ago. The topography is entirely different. Can we say Maqamu Ibrahim wa man dakhalahu kana amina Does who enters it is amin, is safe. Can we say this is true in our modern age? Egyptians who have gone to Umrah or Hajj were arrested and turned over to the Egyptian government. Uyghurs were arrested and turned over to the Chinese government. This is, we can't just, as a people, we can't just pass over things like that. You know, in the same way we can't pass over al-infaq mimma tuhib. You can't pass over what we are doing with God's sacred space. All of these are like thermometers for the health of the ummah. Okay. Um, okay. Now, 99 and 100. Quran, Ali Kitab, 
لما تصدون عن سبيل الله لما تصدون عن سبيل الله من آمن تبغونها عوجا وأنتم شهداء وما الله بغافل عما تعملون يا أيها الذين آمنوا تطيعوا فريقا من الذين أوتوا الكتاب يردوكم بعد إيمانكم بعد إيمانكم كفارة سر بعد إيمانكم كافرين أم This is 99 and 100. Again, we get into the context, the contextual context, contextuality and the Quran reacting to what is going on in Medina at the time. So, 99 people of the book why do you why do you bar those who come to believe from the path of God and, and you seek to make it crooked. In other words, you seek to, de, um, to deform it or you seek to misdirect it. Uh, when you in fact bear, bear witness or you, have, you in fact bear witness for God, for God is not aware, if God is not unaware of what you do, so, here the narrative goes that Shas bin Qais, who um, was a, a rabbinic figure uh, at the time, he's an he's a interesting character in, in the, in the seerah, but anyway. So, Shas bin Qais in this situation among the things that he was very unhappy about was the rapprochement and the 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 um uh the fact that the aus and khasraj the two tribes that had warred with each other in mecca for about a hundred years and as i mentioned before that tribes especially the jewish tribes that were in Mecca had profited handsomely from the fact that the Aus and Khazraj were locked in war for a long time. And in fact, some of the tribes were closer to the Aus, other tribes, Jewish tribes were closer to the Khazraj, but that they were acting as money lenders. You know, the war obviously was expensive, so they were constantly, there was this element of profiting in money lending, and also selling weaponry, um, swords and 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 um, shields and every other war paraphernalia, and so on. So among the things that, of course, happen when the Aus and Khazraj put aside their feud and they convert to Islam and they become the Ansar, is severe profit losses. And so, 
شاس بن قيس whether he goes himself or he, he sends one of his students either because you have both reports anyway he goes to leaders of the Aus and Khosraj in a, there was an event in which the representatives from both Aus and Khosraj were sitting together and this is shortly before Uhud and he starts reminding them of Yom Bu'as. Yom Bu'as was a battle, a famous battle between the Aus and Khosraj before Islam that the Aus won. The Aus defeat the Khosraj in this battle. And part of reminding them of Yom Bu'as is started reciting poetry that the Aus had composed about the Khosraj and the Khosraj has composed in uh, retort uh, after losing the battle responding to the Aus and when that poetry was recited the old feelings of Jahiliya came back and they started, of course, you know, poetry back then was like the way people would hear nationalistic songs today. And, you know, it pumps you with energy and excitement and so on. And the, the two parties, because of this event, nearly went to blows. They, they actually started grabbing sticks and swords. And although Muslim they nearly went back to their feud, splitting along tribal lines. And when the Prophet ﷺ heard about this battle that was about to take place, he rushes over to the location and he says, he makes a very famous statement, say, Adawa Jahiliya, that are you going to go back to Jahiliya? feuding along tribal lines, and I am amongst you. And they come to their senses, and the battle is avoided, and so on. And so, this verse, or this part of Ali Oman is commenting about the fact when it says, it is not, it is not addressing a, a, it's not a, it's exactly the Mahkam and Mutashabah phenomenon, right? It is addressing a particular situation, a particular phenomenon. But the lesson you get from it is, is what is provided in 100. And notice something about the Quranic expression. When it talked about the particular event, it says, Qul ya kitab. It talks to the people of the book, generally. Because it is talking about an event in which the non-Muslim party in Medina 
was happy that Muslims were about to go to blows and that the unity of Muslims was about to break down. Allah knows that this was their general widespread sentiment. But when it comes to telling us a lesson to take from it, it says, In if you obey some of those, some of the people of the book. Now, when it comes to giving us the, the muhkam, the moral lesson, it qualifies it. Not all of them are like this, but some of them are like this. Do you understand what I'm saying? So God knows that the generalization and there's another example that occurred earlier in Ali Omran, but I, you know, didn't point it out. That, but the same dynamic that Allah knows the generalization is accurate in reference to the historical circumstance. But when it comes to talking about beyond that historical circumstance, it qualifies some of the people of the book. So if you are going to learn the muhkam from this, then understand that it is always think in a in a in a way that people with hikmah think, people with wisdom think. They don't generalize, make sweeping generalizations. And some of the people of the book are in fact intent on seeing you lose your path. And be part of the hikmah is to be conscientious of who in fact wants the best for you, who in fact is happy with you as you are, and who would like to see you deviate and lose your path. Okay. Then, continuing on with this theme is 103. Yeah, 103. Hold on to Allah's robe. So, commenting further on these events is the prescription that goes beyond the historical events to the imperative. Now, when two things about holding on to God's rope one is the obvious point is that if you are God's party and if this is the anchor and if you are then your life is centered 
around holding on to Allah's rope. It's your orientation. And it's a powerful image, right? It's as if whatever goes in life, you are holding on a rope, holding on to a rope. This rope that is extended to you for your salvation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All types of things surround you. But what matters is that you continue holding on to this rope extended to you by Allah. Obviously, this makes the center of what you are about is to grab on to this rope and hold on to it. If your attitude is one that basically drifting willy-nilly where you know you are unanchored and without a purpose and without a thorough realization that your being is about grasping onto Allah's rope. When the Prophet this is the second point is asked about the Prophet says Allah's firm rope is the Quran. That its wonders and its lessons never end. Um, whoever follows it will be on the righteous path. And whoever practices it and whoever holds on to it will be on a Surat al-Mustaqeem. So this, the, 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 the rather obvious but not obvious point, again, that for a Muslim, the center of their being is the Quran. That is Allah's rope. For, and this goes back to, you know, interestingly what Grace was saying is that to, to be without the Quran as the anchor of our existence, Yeah, anyway, it's, I don't know what to say about it. Okay. And of course, that a reminder to the Muslim Ummah that a tafarruq, that if you allow yourself to slip back to the Jahiliya, to the, all the, the, the tribalism and the um, pettiness of the Jahiliya and the, the, the way that people would fight over material wealth and prestige and honor and all of that, um, then holding, up to, holding on to God's rope is a mirage.
I mean, it, it is it is really it's 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 amazing that we are living in a historical period where Muslims have caused the worst humanitarian disaster confronting the world today. Muslims have caused other Muslims that type of harm. And Congress just approved another sale to Saudi Arabia, $600 million worth of weapons, so Saudi Arabia could continue its war in Yemen. The war was disastrous consequences. And there, there are there are Muslims who think that they can exist without taking a position on anything, whether it is a humanitarian that this doesn't affect whether they go to Umrah, whether they go to Hajj, whether they um, uh, how I, I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. I mean, if if you really just bother to read what is going on in Yemen. Bother to read the devastation. The, the, anyway. Then Al-Amran is leading up to taking us back and this is a typical Quranic style where it focuses in on actual problems or contextual issues and then draws you back to a core principle to one of the critical lessons that qualifies as part of that Ummul Kitab category, the heart of the Quran, the essence of the Quran. So first, it tells us This is 104. So, Part of you should enjoin the good and resist what is evil, or is it saying, be an ummah? You in your entirety, be an ummah. And the Razi and the Zamakhshari have very powerful discussions in this. The, the gist of it, yes, you know, that. When it comes to the mechanics, the instrumentalities of Al-Amr al-Ma'ruf, then we talk about specializations, who does what, and so on. But when it comes to the ethical core, the principle itself, is that the orientation of your ummah, collectively, all of you, the orientation of your ummah is that this is an ummah, What is this Ummah about? What is the Atasam Bihablillah about? 
holding on to Allah's rope about? It is about furthering what is good and standing up against what is not good. As Zamakhshari puts it, furthering what is beautiful and resisting what is ugly. Now, and emphasizing again the danger of furqa, the danger of, because if you become consumed by, if you become distracted by internal conflicts, instead of focusing on your main mission, furthering goodness and resisting what is not good, you become focused about feuding with one another, then that will defeat al-amr al-ma'ruf al-munkar. Because what you will be doing is fighting with one another. Exactly what's happening in Yemen. It becomes, you know, resisting the Shia of Iran takes priority to anything that happens on in Palestine. Precisely the type of insanity that we are seeing in the modern age. But then, this leads up to this core, this crescendo, this core principle. كُنْتُمْ خَيْرَ أُمَّةٍ أُخْرِجَتْ لِلنَّاسِ تَأْمُرُونَ بِالْمَعْرُوفِ وَتَنْهَوْنَ عَنِ الْمُنْكَرِ وَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِاللَّهِ So, your status as the خَيْرُ أُمَّةِ خَيْرُ أُمَّةِ is not a chosen people, but a, a status of like saying, um, you are the the ummah most capable of goodness. Khair ummah, the the ummah of khair. But your status depends on that critical function. Now, go back to that, the image that the surah began with. A party of God and it standing in a battlefield against the other. And what Surah Al-Amran has taken you in this journey to then understanding that this party of God is about what? What is that? It's even its conflict itself in the battlefield is about what? It is about that you stand for goodness. <clears throat> you cannot stand for a da'wah jahiliyyah, you cannot stand for a, a, a jahili cause. You cannot stand for a nationalistic cause. You cannot stand for an ethnic cause. 
You cannot stand for a class cause. You cannot stand for an ethnic racial cause. You must stand for God's rope and a Rabbani cause, a godly cause. And a godly cause is anchored in the principle of goodness, beauty, and ugliness, a qubha. And then harken back to the image of John Yahya, the birth of Yahya to Zachariah, to the image of Al Umran. What was what was the mission of Yahya? And what was the mission of Isa? What is it that they did in their existence that caused them to be executed? In a word, Al-Amr al-Ma'roof al-Nihan al-Munkar. Do you see? In a word, all they've done is John would go around speaking up against what is wrong and Jesus was a unrelenting critic of what is wrong and as a result they were targeted and done with and persecuted and that is why the image of Al-Amran is anchored at the beginning of the Surah. So you understand the mission and even the possible consequences of being a people of Al-Amr al-Ma'roof al-Nahyan al-Munkar. It is the core mission of an Ummah that claims to stand on Allah's side. Now, as numerous commentators have said, Zamakhshari has a wonderful grammatical analysis if you're interested in the grammar of kuntum, why, the, why Allah uses the, the expression kuntum. And Zamakhshari uh, does a wonderful job unpacking the grammar of that. But anyway, um, that in the same way that you are khayru ummah, that if you perform this function, well, if you don't perform the function, then that status of khayru ummah, the best of people, or the most elevated or no longer holds your bond your ahd with Allah no longer holds and you could become from khayru ummah into exactly the opposite of khayru ummah okay 
and then and the invitation or reminding Ahl al-Kitab, the people of the book, وَلَوْ آمَنَ آهْلُ الْكِتَابِ لَكَانَ خَيْرًا لَهُمْ مِنْهُمُ الْمُؤْمُنُونَ وَأَكْثَرُهُمُ الْفَاسِقُونَ If the people of the book would join you in, in understanding that this is Allah's message and this is what it's all about and has been all about since Ibrahim السلام, to Muhammad السلام, it, it would be better for them. Now, as we'll see, Ali Omran repeatedly reminds us that among people of the book, there are those who are believers, those who are rightly guided. And many of them are not, or most of them are not. But that discernment constantly, a reminder that it is not the case that you can describe all of the people of the book as kuffar, or all of the people of the book as fusaq. That constant call, and some Quranic interpretations being confronted by this repeated emphasis in Al-Amran, then resort to the fiction of abrogation and say, well, all these verses were abrogated because they, 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 they couldn't reconcile different, what the Quran says about different circumstances at different times. Um, but anyway, okay. So, notice 111. That short expression, all they can do to you is hurt you. That short expression is is actually it it calls for deep reflection. It is like saying there is a difference between darar and aza. Aza is hurt. Darar is real harm. Well, all they can do to you is hurt you. As long as hurt doesn't become harm, meaning as long as that hurt doesn't defeat you, doesn't change your moral sense, doesn't cause you to deviate from the path, to let go of Allah's rope, al-a'tasam bihablillah, then you're okay. Because Anna Omran is going to start leading up to dealing with the issue of hurt and what hurt does. But it's, it starts out by, by sort of introducing the topic by saying, you know, 
it is up to you whether you allow that hurt to become harm or not. This, this has to do with your psychological and emotional resilience, as we'll see. Now, 1.11, that rest, that second part of the ayah, that if they fight you, they will run away and they will not be victorious. Was remarkable because there are different reports whether it was re this was all after Uhud, revealed after Uhud or shortly before Uhud. But in either case, Uhud is the battle where the Kuffar did not run away. And in fact, routed Muslims. And yet the Quran comes here and says that if they fight you, they will not stand their grounds. And this caused Quranic interpreters, interpreters a long pause. Why would God say that? Is God making a prediction about what happens later on, at long after Uhud? Because it is true. But not all battles, non-Muslims simply ran away. So the battle where Muslims confronted the Byzantine Empire, the Byzantines didn't run away. Ibn Arabi in his Futuhat says something very interesting, which I think is that if Muslims remain in a state of moral clarity and they don't allow hurt to become harm, then goodness, al-husn, will always prevail at the end. The froth will go, and what is good will remain. But it requires that Muslims remain steadfast in their mission and in their firm belief in God's beauty and the beauty of God and that a firm belief that that is the anchor and the goal and that when Allah says this in it's like saying it is not about who vanquished who in, in the battle. It is about who you are after the battle.
I would add to this, though, go back to Al-Umran. The birth of Yahya was so beautiful. The birth of Isa was so beautiful. The relationship, what, the, 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 the context of Maryam and Maryam's parents and Maryam's caretakers, it's so beautiful. And were they harmed? Yes, they were harmed because they were killed. But men al-adbar, they were killed. But who was ultimately vanquished? It wasn't Yahya and Isa and Maryam and Zachariah. The people who killed them might have thought they vanquished them. But in fact, those who did the killing were the ones who were really vanquished, whose really traces, exactly, adbar, that, that their traces were erased. And it is John and Maryam and Zachariah and Isa were the ones who planted firm steps on the ground. Okay, then notice 112. So this, the 112, this expression, أينما ثقفوا إلا بحبل من من الله وحبل من الناس وباءوا بغضب من الله وضربت عليهم المسكنة. So this reference بأنهم كانوا يكفرون بآيات الله ويقتلون الأنبياء بغير حق. Then it's clear that it's referring to the Israelites and the reference to killing of the prophets makes it clear that it's talking about the Israelites. But notice a rather interesting thing that it says that because of their misdeeds, Allah has doomed them to a state of a state of um, of uh, uh, of being disinherited and, and, and uprooted, but then it provides for an exception. Illa bihablin min Allah wa hablin min nas They are in a lowly status unless they hold on to the rope, a rope from God 
and erope from their fellow human beings. So Quranic commentators were sort of puzzled a bit by this and said, you find in, 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 uh, in, um, in Quranic commentators things that sort of make you shake your head in that a lot of the Quranic commentators say, you know, look, look at the Israelites in our day and age. And these are, you know, Quranic commentators written over many different centuries. مُسْتَضْعَفُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَيْسَ لَهُمْ رَئِيسًا مُعْتَبَرٌ That they are oppressed and oppressed people and they don't have a, a leader or uh, uh, they don't have a king that they follow anywhere. Uh, they're all dispersed. And then they come and say, but this exception that they can overcome the state of weakness if they hold on to Allah's rope or to and a rope from Allah and a rope from people. And they say, well, it must be talking about that if they pay the jizya, then Muslims will protect them. The people writing this could not have imagined the day will come where it is Muslims who are effectively paying the jizya. All the money that Muslims are funneling to Israel now for, for, to, to buy Israel's pleasure and to make sure that Israel uh, is friendly to them. It's a, it's a form of jizya that they pay. I, it, it, but notice, isn't it, it, perhaps it is because, in fact, the Israelites did precisely, precisely that. They helped one another, that's Hablu Minan Nas, they started coming to one another's aid and they among forget all the you know we're not talking about the Jews of New York and the Jews uh, that you uh, I'm talking about I have, I will say that the people that I've encountered or percentage-wise that honor their own tradition more than any other people are the Jewish people. Even those who don't believe when it comes to just honoring their tradition as a concept, as an idea, leave alone actual religiosity. I mean, if, if, if the number of religious people in the Israeli army uh, far exceeds by miles 
number of religious people in any Muslim army I know of. The, not, the amount of money devoted to the study of Jewish traditions and the amount of institutions worldwide, they are a people that took turned a rope from God and a rope from... So this area has always struck me, at the time it was revealed, you know, Muslims really had no basis to reflect on it. Okay, so a rope from God, but, but, but we are living the fulfillment of what happens when Muslims abandon God's rope and when others, in fact, hold on to a rope even if they're not Muslim. And I think that that needs to be part of how you reflect upon the tradition and understand the tradition. You can't just ignore things like that. What the Quran is teaching you about a principle, purposeful, meaningful existence. Do you have a cause? Or is your cause simply rhetoric and slogans and, you know, folklore? dances and food and the like but beyond that there is nothing or do you actually understand what it means to be god conscious muslim or not muslim not god conscious in the sense that you use god to exploit your fellow Muslims or whoever your co-religionists are, but you use your God consciousness to build a society that is more just, more equitable, more principled. Okay. Then you notice right after 111, because it's it, especially at the time when they say, that they are, they deserve God's wrath, and they deserve to be lowly and oppressed because they killed the prophets. The temptation for people receiving this is to say, oh yeah, you know, they're horrible people. So immediately, Allah follows this with Laisu Wait a minute. If this is what you're going to tempt, be tempted to think, hold on, they're not all the same. Laisu is literally, they're not the same. They're not all the same. Min ahli kitab Astounding ad, right? Says they're not all the same. There are people of the book. There are among the Jews and among Christians, and 
if you consider Zoroastrians people of book, people of the book generally, whatever it fits in that category, there are among them who worship late into into the night. Meaning they are God fearing, and they are serious about their relationship with Allah, but it doesn't stop there. It takes you back to an Amr al-Maruf al-Munkar. But it is not just theoretical, pietistic, selfish practice. Their piety is not about serving themselves and feeling good about themselves. But they in fact uphold the principle of goodness and resist what is wrong and they perform good deeds and you want to know the principle what good they do will not be ignored. Now, whether in the, mod, in the pre-modern world, in the medieval world, for a text to talk about the other this way was mind-boggling, is mind-boggling. No text talked about the other this way. But even in our modern world, now of course the, the, the Wahhabis of Islam said, oh, all of this is abrogated. On what basis? Allah's message is remarkably nuanced and ethical. Understand if you are tempted to generalize and feel superior to the other, it's not about whether you call yourself just Muslim. Of course, Allah wants you to, to take your shahada. But there are those who take the shahada and are morally empty. And there are those who, who are people of the book, but they live morally conscientious lives. They do good, and Allah will not deny them. The level of ethical, moral nuance. So here, it remember that in Ali Amran, it comes and it tells you, so. Those who say, well, you know, our laws or moral laws apply only to our co-religionists. Allah clearly condemns that. And we've talked about this last halakha. But it goes on to clarify or to, to set out very clearly the core value of an Amr bil Ma'roof wa Nahyan al Munkar as a Khayru Ummah or even its existence among the other that 
it could be the salvation for the other if they adhere to it. So, and then notice, مثل ما يرفقون في هذه الحياة الدنيا حياة الدنيا كمثل ريح فيها سر أصابت حرث قوم ظلموا أنفسهم فهلكته ما ظلمهم الله ولكن أنفسهم يظلمون that those who spend what in, in the Quranic interpreters say المكارم والمفاخر those who spend their money in indulgences مكارم and مفاخر is sort of spend their money in what translates into looking good and prestige. Spend their money for earthly purposes. And then Allah sort of that they are as like a people who um, plant only for after their, their crop grows is um, cold wind, freezing cold wind that comes and basically freezes the crop to dress. So it's like you've, you've planted this crop for all this crop to be overtaken by frost and come to nothing. And the, the image of that you spend the money for prestige and appearance, but that, and this is, I, I don't remember where I read this, but it was in one of the Sufi tafasir, that that image of coldness, that you, you've spent your money in prestige and image, but what overtakes you is the loneliness of cold weather. It's like, you know, the, the image of being cold and lonely, shivering. And so after you've, you've wasted all this wealth, ultimately your soul remains uh, alone and literally like, cold and frozen and lonely. Your money doesn't buy you the warmth of Hablullah al-Matin, of Allah's rope. That's the nature of, of physical things. You acquire them, they give you pleasure for a while, but then they leave you cold and lonely. And you need to spend more to get that, you know, momentary high. Uh, but then you're going to experience the cold and loneliness again. And of course, you know, that, that ultimately, it's not Allah who's, who 
uh, uh, does this to them. They do it to themselves by their insistence on this philosophy of life. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 118. So, again, from a general mother of the book principle to draw, to, again, going back to applications. So, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا لَا تَتَّخِذُوا بِطَانَةً مِنْ دُونِكُمْ لَا يَأْلُونَكُمْ خَبَالًا وَدُّ مَا عَنِتُّوا This is uh, 118. So, Bitana, Muhammad Azza translated as, do not take bosom friends, people who are not of your kind, because they spare no effort to corrupt you. They would love to see you in distress. Vehement hatred has already come into the open from out of their mouths, but what their hearts conceal is yet worse. We have indeed made signs clear unto you if you would but use your reason. It's a pretty good translation. That among the challenges, there were a number of Muslim converts who continued to have very close relationships. Bitana is like um, very close friends. Sort of you're like best friends. Muhammad Assad says bosom friends. But they're very close friends. The problem is that with a number of these converts, their friends And Allah, Allah knows who these people are. And, I mean, of course, in the tradition talks about, we can't remember their names, there were three of them. But, anyway, that... They're, the, the people that they took as very close friends were people who did not share their value system in our modern language. That's what Muhammad Asa translates as, who are not your kind, meaning they show, don't share your value system. They pretended to be okay with what the friends believe in, i.e., the, the fact that their friends converted to Islam. But in reality, they were unhappy about it and wished that they would leave Islam. The problem is that your friendship, especially close friendship, influences your value system. There is no such thing that like that my I, my my best friends are not Muslim unless your best friends are among those who are non-Muslims who are you amuruna bil maruf and haunan and munkaran. They, they are, yes, they're not Muslim, but they're Muslim in reality, not in name. But if your, these best friends are not Muslim in reality, 
not Muslim in name, and don't share your value system, and their hearts are not pure, they don't even approve of your value system, you will be influenced. And And look at 119. So, although most commentators say that 119 is referring to even a different set of circumstances, but uh, let, let me get to 119, let me finish with 118 first. So, 118 is these divided, be cautious, be aware that your batana, batana is this word, the bosom friends, your, your close confidants. Batana to shakhs are the, the closest people to a shakhs. That your batana must share your value system. Or at a minimum, must be supportive of your value system. Otherwise, you would be conflicted and divided human beings. And you, the whole entire Amr Ma'aruf al-Nahi becomes feels incongruent and, and unrealistic. You know, after all, you, you don't want to bother your even your your butana, your best of besties with talking to them about what's right and what's wrong because you don't share the value system so you find yourself increasingly ignoring that whole Amr al-Ma'ruf al-Nahi al-Munkar stuff and focused on what makes you comfortable in life and that is basically to avoid all meaningful subjects. Now, 119 Reference to you love them, but they don't love you. Most commentators, the majority, say that it refers to especially the group that that became uh, um sort of surrounded Ibn Abi Salt, uh, especially uh, as we all see what they will do in Uhud. But this group of people that had not nom in a nominal way become Muslim, took the Shahada. But they remained very distinct negative critics of the Prophet and what he's done in Medina. And it was clear that they're, they're, you know, they, they didn't join Muslims in prayers, they didn't pay zakah, they didn't spend in, in God's way, they were constantly unhappy with whatever the, the Prophet did in Medina, and 
but they were keen on their friendship with a group of Sahaba that were real Muslims because they were the entry point to the Muslim community. Although they, they hung around Ibn Abi Salt, and he was sort of there, they, they would sit, they would meet together in their nadwa and gripe and complain and bitch about the Prophet and what he's done in Medina night after night. But they were keen on their friendship with certain key Sahaba because these were their, this, these were their sort of gateways to the Muslim community. And Allah comes and is directing his talk to these Sahaba in particular and saying, you know, your relationship with them, you know that these people meet every night in, you know, criticizing the Prophet and, and you know that you continue to convince yourself that your relationship, your friendship hasn't changed. And although they hang around in Abi Salt and, and his party, and you hang around the Prophet, but you want to believe that your old friendship hasn't changed. But in reality, you also know that they hate any success you achieve as Muslims. And be brave enough to confront what you know to be true and to take action. So after the revelation of this verse, in fact, a number of the Sahaba terminated their relationships or their friendships with a number of people who were part of, if we ever do the Sira project, I mean, we can talk about all the details because they're sort of interesting and there were some love stories and some romance and some, you know, very interesting, exciting stuff about this. But anyway, let Allah decide whatever Allah wants. Yeah. Yeah, anyway. If we... Yeah, it, 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 you know, it, it, knowledge is a burden because it, you... Okay, so what do you do with it? Okay, so you've spent a lifetime acquiring it. Wonderful, you've acquired it. So what do you do with it? I mean, if, if, you, if you don't have the... the, the If you don't have the, 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 the proper setting to release this knowledge, so, okay, so you know it, and then you die with it. it it's really... Okay, anyway. So, what, what, we'll leave all the details out, but what happens is that, they, they, in fact, there is a number of the pennies say, okay, you know, our relationship can't continue the way it is. You hang around and I salt all the time. You are known that your social circles are these uh, circles of that of people who don't even come to pray with the Prophet. I am a different human being, so we're going to part ways. 
Okay. And notice 120, the elaboration that it is sort of a test a Muslim cares about what happens to fellow Muslims. A Muslim resonates with happiness when fellow Muslims are better and sadness when something happens that hurts Muslims. The idea of a Muslim that just doesn't care the way that uh, the Islam that is being, that people are trying to construct in the modern age, where you're a Muslim but you don't care about what happens to Muslims in, elsewhere in the world, including Palestinians. It, it, nowadays, I, I, I read some things that are truly shocking, where, where people, it's not just that they're not caring about what happened to Palestinians, but I read some stuff that's coming out of Saudi Arabia and the Emirates where basically they're taking the Israeli point of view. Where, yeah, you know, yeah, Palestinians are just terrorists and they deserve whatever happens to them. And, you know, they, they've sold their land. And it is astounding. I mean, if you are tempted to think that these Quranic verses are saying the obvious things and they have no relevance anymore, think again. Because there are Muslims nowadays that so badly need these lessons. If you are a Muslim, if you're a real Muslim, you care about al-hasana wa And you care if hasana befalls Muslims, you're happy. And if sayyah befalls fellow Muslims, you're sad. If you're not, these are not your feelings, you're a munafiq. And my relationship to you should be severed. So what am I saying? Think about the modern age. So if you have Muslims sitting in the Emirat or sitting in Saudi or sitting in Zaytuna and they don't care about what happens to their fellow Muslims, like this guy who was defending the Muslim ban and when Trump instituted a Muslim ban and, you know, all these Muslims who were affected by the Muslim ban were suffering and they say, oh, what's the big deal? Well, you know, Muslim ban is not permanent. It will eventually be revoked. Uh. The ayat of nifaq the very proof of a munafiq, is that they simply do not care about what happens to fellow Muslims. Ayatul Nifaq. What time is it? Oh. Uh, let's take a five minute break, our final break, then we'll come back for uh, maybe 20 minutes and then stop. Okay. Then, Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Then notice the Surah Al-Umran. After laying, look at how detailed and profound and meticulous the foundation 
the Anomran lays out before dealing with the main subject of the Battle of Uhud. It is as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, just doesn't want to talk about a battle that you've lost and move on. But a, a meticulous laying of foundation of ethical principles that and foundational principles that you must comprehend before you can comprehend the lesson from the trauma of the Battle of Uhud. And so we get 121 and 122 is the beginning of what will pre, what will become the main subject for the remaining of Surah Al-Umran, for the remaining balance of Surah Al-Umran. And so it starts out with an image that reminds us of the two parties that meet in the battle of in the battlefield at the beginning of Al Umran. وَإِذْ غَدَوْتَ مِنْ أَهْلِكَ تُبَوِّئُ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ مَقَاعِدَ لِلْقِتَالِ Allah سَمِيعٌ عَلِيمٌ. So that image is of the Prophet ﷺ getting ready for the confrontation, getting ready for the battle, and is. You can you can visualize in your mind the image of this prophet with a great deal of zeal and anxiety is preparing people for the confrontation. But then one twenty two is Hamad Ta'ifatani Minkum and Tafshala. الله وليهما وعلى الله فليتوكل المؤمنون وعلى الله فليتوكل المؤمنون so we right away know that although the prophet was investing a great deal of care and concern in getting ready for this battle. But right away, we confront the result of weakness of faith, of people whose value system is not solid. And a contextual ayah where it says that there are at least two parties that nearly failed. So what is it talking about? Well, in the Battle of Uhud, we know that first, the Prophet ﷺ knows that there is a huge army of Meccans marching towards Medina. 
And he has a council and consults with and the older people, the older generation overall, says we should stay put in Medina and defend from Medina. The younger people said thought it's 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 dishonorable for them to defend from Medina to allow the Meccan army to lay siege in Medina and the idea was uh, older people said well if we fight from our homes then we can turn our homes into the streets into basically a battlefield and people you know then women and children can all be involved and we can throw them with rocks and you know throw stuff at them from top of ceilings and stuff like that but the younger generation said no the, the we we've never Medina has never been invaded and we, you know, now that you're with us, we don't want the dishonor of having Medina being invaded, so let's go out and confront them in, in the battlefield. And the, the majority said to go out, and the Prophet accepted the opinion of the majority. Although his own opinion was to, to defend from within Medina. So now they organized their army, a much smaller army, and they started marching towards the Meccan army. And at that point, the same people that Allah talked about before and said, don't take them as your butana, don't take them as your close allies. Um, the followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay, midway to Uhud, says there are two different reports. Some reports said that he didn't believe that there's a battle that would take place. But these reports don't make a lot of sense because why did he believe that there, why did he say that there's no battle is going to take place? The other reports which are far more plausible is that he thought or he said that this is a suicide mission. And we are going to go and to fight a much bigger army. We are grossly, um, uh, grossly underarmed. These people have much better arms than we do. This is a suicide mission. I'm not going to commit my people to a suicide mission. And midway to Uhud, he withdraws, now notice, with one-third of the troops. So if you think that the story of the Hijrah is they all go to Medina and then everyone sings Salah al-Badr alayna and they live happily after. These types of stories vastly complicate the picture. He withdraws in the midst of battle, abandoning his fellow Muslims with one-third of the army. A devastating blow. Now, when he did this, 
Banu Salma from the Khazraj wa Banu Haritha from the Aus there are two clans with, belonging to the tribe of Khazraj a clan belonging to a tribe of Khazraj called uh, Banu Salma Salma and Banu Haritha from the tribe of Aus they start thinking well now that we've lost one third well we were already outnumbered, grossly outnumbered. So now we are even much worse. If it was a suicide mission before, now it is even more so. And they start talking very loudly about withdrawing as well. If they would have withdrawn, that would have been about two-thirds of the Muslim army withdrawing halfway to the battle. And after holding their own council, both Banu Salma and Banu Haritha decide not to withdraw. So, in Hamad Ta'ifatani Minkum Antafshala, Wallahu Waliyuma, Walla Allah Faliatawakal Mu'nu. There were two groups that were about to grossly fail. So Allah is leading up to the lessons now of Uhud. And the first is the material proof of what happens if, in fact, your faith is influenced by the conduct of others. What happens if instead of being anchored in the principles that you are should be anchored in, that Allah is your wali, Allah is your ally, and that your reliance is on, on Allah, not on others, what happens if, in fact, you do have, because we have in the reports, that friends, people among Banu Salama and people in, in Banu Haritha, they were close buddies to pe with people who were belonged or for followers of Abdullah ibn Ubay. And so when their buddies withdrew, they went to the elders of Banu Salama and Banu Haritha and said, you know, our buddies told us that they withdrew because it's a suicide mission. You know, how about us? Immaterial proof of precisely what Allah is talking about. What happens when your close confidants don't share the right values? When it matters, you will fail. Not, I mean, you, it could be fine, fine, fine as life is going normally. But when it really matters, when it comes to the real test, you fail. Notice that, and we will see this in, in the balance in Ali Amran, that Allah 
talks about ta'ifatani minkum. These two who start shaking and, and were thinking of withdrawing, they are counted among the Muslims. Allah doesn't comment here about the one-third that did withdraw because they are out of the fold. They are not minkum. They're, they're, they are the hypocrites. And this is not, this is something that many commentators have pointed out as well. That often the hypocrites of the Ummah, those of the Ummah that call themselves Muslim, but that go around befriending the enemy and selling their fellow Muslims out. You know, oh, we care about the Israelis, we don't care about the Palestinians. Are no longer a part of the Ummah. They are munafiqun. They are hypocrites. They are not a part of the Ummah. Those who don't care about what happens to the Uyghurs in China, those who don't care about what Hindu nationalists are doing to Muslims in India, and giving an award to the Prime Minister, the leader of the Hindu nationalist party, and giving him an award and saying, you know, bravo, you're a great friend, yeah, persecute Muslims in India, we don't care. Those who hold military exercises with Israel and don't even care if the Israelis continue boycotting or, or uh, uh, locking the, the Palestinians in a virtual open-air prison, it's stealing their lands, violating the sanctity of, of Al-Aqsa, and there are no... This is the thing that drives me crazy. This is such an obvious point. It, I shouldn't be pounding and drilling on it. But when I see how my fellow Muslims, their attitudes towards what is clearly wrong, undoubtedly wrong, so obviously wrong. You stop caring about Muslims elsewhere in the world, that's wrong. Simple. You keep saying, are these people even reading the Quran? Does the Quran mean anything in their lives anymore? You know, they call themselves Muslim educational institutions and they go around and they pretend to put all that Islam. Why do they have such a huge audience? What has happened to the Muslim psyche that has made it so deformed that it doesn't see what's even obvious? Today, I was just reading an article. I'm going to close with this. So I was reading an article about drone attacks. The U.S. carries drone attacks only in Muslim countries. 
the U.S. doesn't kill at will human beings anywhere in the world except in Muslim countries. Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Somalia, Chad, and Nigeria. And the article went into great detail about the number of Muslims killed in the Obama administration, in the Trump administration, and now in Biden. And the death toll is astounding. And the U.S. has killed numerous civilians because it drops these 500-pound bombs on Muslims, but the operators on the ground are always making a judgment call based on data they're getting from informants on the ground that is often unreliable. And they make the decision to incinerate human beings from long distances, and there's no oversight. So although numerous strikes, 100% of the casualties were civilians, women and children, no one has ever been held, no one has ever been punished, no one has ever been censored, no one has ever been fired, no one has ever been demoted for killing Muslim civilians. And the article then explains that during the Trump administration, Trump removed all the restrictions that the Obama administration has placed designed to mitigate at least the number of civilian deaths. So what Trump did, he said to the commanders on the field, go ahead, bomb at will. Don't, you don't even get need to get the approval of the White House before you kill a bunch of Muslims anywhere in the world. You make the decision. I don't even want to know about it. And it says that it talks in great detail about how during the Trump era, all these Muslims were killed where no one even, because a lot of times the U.S. will not allow media on the ground to report. And then that during the Biden administration, Biden restored a lot of the restrictions that existed on the Obama administration. However, the culture of impunity and non-accountability continues. No one ever gets punished or censored or demoted or fired, regardless of how many civilian Muslims they kill. And at the very end of the article, very end, the author sort of asks, although the author is not Muslim, obviously, they're two journalists, they're not Muslim, but they just wonder, why is it that the, no one in the world seems to care? Not the International Criminal Court of Justice, no one in the UN, this issue has never been, 
the 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 one time that the International Criminal Court of Justice was thinking of bringing charges against some American officers for war crimes committed in Iraq and in Afghanistan, that effort was completely killed and dis and, and snuffed. And the sort of hint at whether Muslims basically in the modern world have no value. Sort of hint at it. And I couldn't sleep that night. Well, I can't sleep a lot of nights, but anyway. But I'm thinking, wow. We're living in a world where Russians get to kill as many Muslims as they want. No one even knows how many Muslims Russians are killing. French get to kill as many Muslims as they want in Chad and Libya and other African countries, Muslim African countries, and no one knows how many the French kill. The Israelis get to kill Palestinians and the Americans get to kill Muslims in Yemen, in Somalia, in Iraq, in Afghanistan. And you know who particularly doesn't care? It's Muslims themselves. Because all the reports that I've read were written by non-Muslims. Muslims themselves have grown immune. It's not even newsworthy anymore. Oh, another 90 people got incinerated in Afghanistan. Okay. And then people say, well, what do you want us to do? What do you want us to do? Why aren't we funding organizations that go after politicians that protect the war crimes committed because there are committees in Congress that are charged with oversight that are supposed to hold the military accountable when the military fails to hold itself accountable for killing civilians. But the people sitting on this committee don't do anything because it's Muslims being killed. They don't care. So why don't we have, why aren't we finding parties that basically goes and tells these politicians, because you failed to hold the military accountable, we are going to make sure you're not re-elected to office. That's what a people who care do. And a people who care would find, you know, would go to all these rich Muslim doctors and get, you know, just checks for thousands and thousands of dollars to support an effort like this. But why is all this just a big pipe dream? We care, you know, I still get more messages about hijab than I ever get anything that even acknowledges the Muslim, the fact that Muslim has no, and Muslim life has no value in the world anymore. You know, people will not respect you or value you or honor you unless you first respect and value yourself. That's one thing that life has taught me. If you don't treat yourself 
as a human being with dignity and honor and value. No one will. And the same holds true for the world. If Muslims themselves don't, don't honor their own kind. Okay, let's stop here. Alhamdulillah, Rabbil Alameen. Okay, assalamualaikum. Well, that was very depressing. Sad way to end. Um, actually, to add to that, the uh, you actually also get a lot of um, emails that, from people asking you about abortion, from Muslims asking about abortion. This has always been a huge topic, um, mostly because they are either, well, not mostly. I mean, some people obviously have legitimate health issues, but some people are bothered because they because the material like what you've what you've put forward so it's really um sad state of affairs um alhamdulillah this was um as painful as this was this was in just such an incredible session thank you so so much um let me share some of the highlights that i took in my notes um again just the um emphasis on um being godly and having um ethical discernment, um, which must be both developed and maintained, um, and that um, a believer is accepting a commitment to living a life um, with an anchor in God and in um, revelation and wisdom. Um, you need both revelation and wisdom, that everything is owned by God and that you um, cannot and or that, you know, the world um, is runs by, has an owner, and um, that we cannot take the attitude as we do of um, things like nature being at our, for us to consume, as opposed to everything falling under the laws of God that have already been set. And that um, we should surrender to God. It's, um, it's not about, okay, and that it's, there are those who, who surrender who are not Muslim, and then there are also Muslims that do not surrender to God, but that is the, the um, message. Um, and for true faith, or bir, the, um, you must spend from what you love, not from what is excess or from what you don't want, but what you actually cherish. Um, and that they're underscoring that, that these um, examples are lessons for us um, on and things to avoid, things that we traps that we can fall into. Um, it was really important to um, emphasize um, or clarify um, the verse about um, people who apostate um, and then commit sin and then um, repent for for the things that they did, but didn't, but don't return back to um, being Muslim. That that is a different category than someone who apostates and repents for apostasy and then comes back. Um, then the principle of um, not attributing lies to God and how that is a grave moral sin. So for us, the lesson, even the, the example that was used um, in the Surah was, was about uh, the, the Orthodox Jew um, dietary habits the lesson was about not attributing lies to God um, or saying, for us, saying something is haram when it's actually not haram. Um, and then offering, as you called it, thermometers for the health of an ummah. 
um, and some, among them, uh, you when we talked about the the haram and the idea that it's supposed to be a safe space or a sacred space where things are not, you know, where, where violence is not to be committed or bloodshed is not supposed to happen, and how that ethic is completely lost in our time, and even the the notion of Mecca being a center for incredible cultural diversity and how that just doesn't exist anymore, um, nor the idea of changing the topography of Mecca that that didn't happen until the modern. Age and I think that these um, references are so important to remember because we just don't talk about them anymore. So it's such a value to be reminded of that. Um, and again, just underscoring the lesson that we must be discerning that we should not generalize um, when it comes to people of the book. Um, God repeatedly says there are some people who are um, are good and understand this uh, importance of standing for what's good and standing against what's bad. Um, and then there are some who are not and who would pr prefer to see you fall off the path of righteousness. Um, the importance of holding God's rope and to not be distracted by internal conflicts, um, losing sight of the big picture, making sure that we re retain the ethical core um, that this is core for our Ummah um, and being a party of God. Um, and the idea of, which I, I assume we're going to get more into, but the idea of maintaining moral clarity and emotional resilience <clears throat> so that um, when you are hurt, that it does not turn into harm, but that we hold on to belief in the beauty of God and the anchor of God and remain beautiful. Um, and the idea that, you know, when God in, is talking about the people of the book and explaining that some are good, that this was completely mind-boggling for medieval times. And even in our times, we find it, you know, harder for people to talk about the other in such positive and nuanced and fair terms. Um, and that these are core values for both Muslims and non-Muslims if they adhere to the idea of standing for righteousness. Um, and that those who spend for image or prestige or for earthly purposes are investing in a harvest that um, can be thought about as um, being destroyed in, in a cold, frozen wind that's, that's lonely and such an important lesson for, for us and how people inv invest in meaningless earthly types of things instead of what actually matters. Um, and then lastly, that your, your closest friends or your intimates um, should share your value or they will have the ability to pull you towards um, comfort and from away from what is really important and especially um, the question about what happens if your faith is weak and affected by the conduct of others um, and what will happen is when, when you're put to the test, if your confidants don't share the same values as you do and want to see you fail, um, you will fail. Be, being an ummah that enjoys uh, good and... Right. Yeah, the, the, that is the core yeah, value the, for me. The, the core, but the, the, one, the one thing that I want to emphasize in the summary is that what this ummah is about is an ummah that does an umrab al-ma'roof and nayan al-munkar. Because this is very central to Ari Umran. And so... Alhamdulillah. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was an incredible session, and I can't wait to continue again on Tuesday, inshallah. So hopefully you guys will have a great rest of the weekend. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.